Birth, the Forgotten Feminist Issue podcast was founded by me, Alicia Staines, maternal health lobbyist, birth nerd and mother of five. I share evidence-based research along with reflections from women who've birthed, researchers, fellow lobbyists and other maternal health professionals. I want to change the culture around birth and maternal health care and I want to get women inspired to embrace birth and motherhood in the feminist movements. If you find value in the work I do and you'd like to connect further, please consider becoming a Patreon of this podcast by heading to patreon.com forward slash Alicia Staines. Welcome to episode 29 of Birth the Forgotten Feminist Issue. Today with me I have midwife and researcher Nigel Lee. He's based at the University of Queensland and has some pretty good research about a range of different things but today I got him on to talk about uh, the perennial tear bundle. I've seen it now renamed in the midwifery circles as the uh, perennial tear bungle Um, but I guess I wanted to maybe dissect the elements of the bundle, the issues around consent and perhaps the harm that this bundle has caused. So welcome, Nigel. Do you want to first so maybe um, give us a bit of your intro and background? It's fairly unusual to see a male midwife, but um, maybe we could just do a little bit on how you got into midwifery, but also your areas of research. Um, so I've been a midwife for, for quite some time, since, since 1987, and in those days, you know, I was a registered nurse to begin with, and you really sort of only had a couple of options to um, uh, to expand beyond that, and that was either mental health nursing or midwifery. I didn't have a really huge amount of interest in mental health nursing. So like many others, I went off and did mid uh, and really enjoyed it. So I kind of stuck with midwifery all the, uh, all the way through. And I've worked mainly in, um, in that birthing setting, in, in birth suites and uh, in metropolitan and regional areas as well, and also overseas in the UK. Uh, and then about, I finished a, a PhD in about 2013, looking at um, sterile water injections for back pain and labour, uh, and then basically just transitioned into academia and full-time research um, since then. And most recently, some of your research is around this perennial tear bundle. Now, it was introduced a few years ago uh, from the Australian, no, what is it? What are Women's Health? What are, what do they call them? Uh, women's Health. Women's Women's Hospitals Australia, WHA Collaborative. Yep, there you go. So I try to avoid using acronyms and that's why because sometimes I don't even know what the acronyms stand for. Uh, but it was introduced a few years ago to reduce the third and fourth degree tear rates because I know that I'd seen some data from the Healthcare Atlas which was highlighting the variations or unwarranted variances and there was maybe like an 11-fold variance at the time between third and fourth degree tear rates. You might be able to correct me on that though. Um, Can you tell me, do you think that the perennial tear bundle um, has worked in reducing third and fourth degree tears? Yeah, it's it's a really good question. And it it seems that, you know, the the bundle they're using, which is, you know, basically consists mostly of the components that have been taken from um, the RCOG, Royal College of Obstetrician Gynecologists in the UK, their bundle, which again was was taken from the sort of Finnish bundle uh, used in, in Scandinavia. And when you look at, at, at the, the research around these bundles, what they've reported on, on you know, the sort of impact they've had, 
it, it varies quite considerably. So the, when they introduced these into, into uh, Norway and Finland, um, some of their studies reported a, a 50% reduction in, in, um, uh, in perineal tears. But when you drill down into that, you find that, that about half of that reduction occurred prior to actually um, uh, introducing their particular bundle. So there was already a, a reduction in, in third and fourth degree tears in those areas prior it, to the introduction of the is, bundle. Is there a term for that? I just, I'm a teacher and I know when we become aware of something... Sometimes that's enough to actually change practice before we actually get rolled out with these very strict set of, I think, is there a term for that? Yeah, it's sometimes it's a bit like a Hawthorne effect. It's, you know, when people know things are changing, they will alter their their um, uh, their behaviour uh, accordingly. And you're quite right. That's kind of one of the explanations given for the reasons why uh, tear rates have reduced. So that even just kind of talking about the topic and making people more aware of it appears to... Um, uh, to, to have similar reductions in, in perineal tear rates. And there's been a study in, in Denmark that kind of looked at this. They looked at a couple of sites, one which had the formal perineal bundle and one which didn't have a, uh, a formal perineal bundle but kind of, you know, talked about ways and means of reducing it. And they saw a similar reduction in both sites. Uh, and there are various iterations of perineal bundles as well. There's a, a couple in the UK that are, are nowhere near as sort of prescriptive as, as the the WHA one, which has also had uh, similar reductions. So it's, you know, whether it works or not, uh, again, the the impact seems to be varying quite considerably. Um, if the, the RCOG recently published from their bundle in the UK and they stated that they saw a 20% reduction uh, across after sort of 40,000 women had been, had, you know, in, had the, had the bundle uh, during their births. And, you know, that sounds fairly dramatic, 20%. But when you actually look at the figures, it was a drop from 33 down to 3%. Tiny. And when you – yes, yeah, yeah. And, when you, and that kind of, you know, happens when you're talking about very small baselines to begin with. So, you know, basically that equates to for every 1,000 women who had the bundle, there were three less third and severe perineal tears or – one less tear for every 330-odd women who uh, the bundle was applied to. One thing that I often um, see skimmed over by this, because like when you break it down to percentage, it actually comes down to quite small, but then they talk about 20%. And we see this in other areas with the stillbirth and, you know, double the stillbirth rate and per thousand, it's actually very tiny. But one thing that is always admitted from this data when they're selling it back to uh, consumers, to midwives and probably obstetricians as well, in that cohort of women how much did the episiotomy rate increase uh yes and that varies considerably as well so in the the rcog one they did they didn't report a particular increase in episiotomies uh but their epis rate is pretty high it's about 24 25 percent anyway um which in the latest stats from um australian perinatal database uh, the episiotomy rate has risen quite considerably in the last couple of years and now sits at around about 24%. Yeah, and that's up from um, like around 20% two years before. So from 2017 to 2019, we've gone from one in five to now one in four. And I think that was just first-time mother's data that I was looking at. But that's still like we're back to the 80s with women just being routinely cut. Yeah. Yeah, and that's yeah, and again, in you know, in other studies, there's one from Denmark where they saw a significant increase in the epitome rates. It went from something like some eight to about sort of eighteen percent. 
Um, but they also, you know, saw a decrease in intact perineums, but no change in third and fourth degree tears. And some of the research that we published a few years ago, we looked at data from a, a large Brisbane Metropolitan Hospital, and we looked at 27,000 births, and half of which had, or about two thirds of which, where the midwives had used a hands-on approach, and about a third where the midwives had used a hands-poised approach, which is kind of one of the big debates within the bundle. Can, can you and just ex- was, sorry, Nigel, just because we were going to yeah. have like lay women consumers that, no, that they're not going to know the difference between hands-on and um, poised. Can you just explain that before you go through the data, please? Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So uh, hands-on, it's kind of a, a, you know, an old approach. We've been discussing the hands-on, hands-poised debate for about 150 years. The hands-on approach basically means that the midwife will put a hand on the baby's head as it's emerging from, from the vagina and either press inwards and downwards, try and sort of slow the the progression of the head and also what they call is, is maintain that kind of nice flex chin down position. Um, and then they'll also put a hand on the perineum itself, thumb and a couple of fingers, and try and literally try and pinch the, the tissue together to uh, to stop it from tearing. Um, Doesn't sound too pleasant, problems, like as a woman. It, well, no, it isn't. No, <laughs> particularly at that moment where they're trying to give birth and someone's trying to hold them back and, and pinch it together. And so th- this has a there are two things about this that this has been examined and compared to the hands poised. And the hands poised doesn't exclude someone putting a bit of a little bit of pressure on their head to if it's starting to be birthed a bit quickly, but it uses a bit of clinical judgment on when and when that's not uh, not required. Um, and also in water births, we use a completely hands off approach. Yeah, which, uh, which until which, the baby's actually out. Yeah, which the no coincidence that often it's delivered delivers the best outcomes. Like if you leave women alone, funnily enough, they'll birth their babies. Well, and that's the kind of the the the, the theoretical idea behind the, the hands boys is if you leave the baby alone, that they will basically find their own and and best way out. Because they're they're not completely passive. They do wriggle around a little bit. And you can watch the head kind of moving around a bit on the perineum as it kind of works its way out. Um, and the interesting thing, of course, is that we, you know, we use a hands-off in, in, in water births, but the rates of third and fourth degree tears do not differ between water births and land births where a hands-on approach is used. So kind of, you know, we start looking at, well, is it actually having any impact? And there's been lots of trials, very high-quality randomised control trials that have compared hands poised to hands-on, and none of them have demonstrated any, any benefit from a hands-on approach to a hands poised. And the trouble with the hands-on is that you've, realistically going to have the woman giving birth on her back or on a bed at least um, to apply the hands-on. And we know that, that, as I say, in our research, 97% of the midwives who used the hands-on or 97% of the women who had the hands-on approach, they gave birth on the bed on reclining as opposed to about 70% who um, had uh, the hands boys. So it, we know it has an impact upon the choices women have and the birth, the position they actually give birth in, in because the midwives feel a bit a bit pressured to actually apply this technique. And the real, as I say, the only realistic way of doing it is to have um, the woman reclining on the bed. Now, um, I mean, I've seen bits and pieces, but is it true though, when you're on your back, I mean, it makes sense because of the shape of the pelvis, um, that like obviously the baby's then got a kind of head up, defying gravity, but... A woman, is she more likely to tear when she's birthing on her back? That seems to be uh, what the research is telling us. And there's been a couple of studies out about that, that, um, you know, that they are more likely for various reasons to um, to tear if they're in, in a reclined position. Some of it's 
the, the shape of the pelvis uh, or the, and the way the legs are positioned um, in, the, in that particular position that tends to reduce the amount of, of stretch uh, available to the perineum. Um, and it seems to be that when women give birth on, on more upright positions or forwards and standing or even, even on their side, uh, sort of reclined on the left lateral position, lying on their left side, that um, seems to reduce uh, the the instance of tearing. And, it, you know, when I started out as a midwife, when I, you know, 30 odd years ago, I remember working with some, some you know, very experienced uh, elder midwives who would, when women were giving birth or these young and un, young women were giving birth to babies that they were attending to adopt, adopt out of that period of time, they would also always get these women to birth lying on their side as opposed to lying on their back, which is kind of the tr traditional approach in the 1980s. And their rationale was that they, you know, they knew from years of experience that when women gave birth on their side, they were less likely to get a perineal injury. So these young girls would, would leave the hospital without a scar on their perineum. Yeah, wow. And yet we have these, it just seems like these cycles that come round and mm. we've got all this evidence to the contrary yet, because I do want to talk about next, like the elements of the bundle. And one of the elements is not like a sideline position. Um, and, and there's plenty of things that could have been included that weren't. Can you go through what the um, five elements of the bundle are? So for those who are not familiar with it, um, this is this is the bundle with five different things in it that um, have pretty much been rolled out. I mean, it was only a certain amount of hospitals, but just from anecdote, it seems to have bled into pretty much all hospitals, whether it's the full bundle or, or particular elements, particularly episiotomy of the bundle. Um can you describe the five parts of that bundle and perhaps sometime, if, if you know, where, where parts of it came from, like the whole 60-degree thing um, of angle of episiotomy, um, I know it's been controversial, all of it's controversial, but perhaps you might be able to describe where some of the parts of the bundle have come from and the rationale behind why they were included. Okay, so, yeah, there are five parts to the bundle itself. Um, the first one is actually applying warm compresses or warm packs to the to the woman's perineum um, as the baby's head starting to starting to emerge or during that birthing stage. And this is something that uh, midwives have been using for years and years um, and was demonstrated uh, in some great work by um, uh, Hannah Darlin um, for her for her PhD to um, reduce the incidence of, of perineal tearing. And including third and fourth degree tears, and I'd say you know midwives have been using this for for years, and that's actually a uh, quite a good component of this of this bundle. And and I guess from uh, um, like a physical point of view, it doesn't need the woman on her back, flat on her back. Oh no, yeah. no, you can apply this pretty well any any position. It's really just a matter of getting a you know a pack, soaking it in nice hot water, and holding it against the perineum, and it helps take the sting away. Uh, and also, we think helps increase the blood supply to the um, to the perineal area at the time and, and just makes it easier and better for it to stretch. Um, so that's one part. The other part is this hands-on the head and perineum, this hands-on approach, um, which is, again, is a fairly controversial and, a, um, and something, again, we've been debating for many, many years. And as you mentioned, you know, that's kind of putting a pressure on the baby's head to re not only sort of maintain that kind of flexion or that chin down position, but also try and slow the head down and pinch the perineum together. Uh, and that's, you know, let's say that we just don't have any evidence kind of supporting that that has any benefit over a hands poised or even a hands off approach. 
Uh, the third part was the episiotomy. And, it, you know, again, this kind of, as I say, gets quite controversial because they say episiotomy when indicated, but it's pretty clear from the discussions we've had with, with midwives and the research we've done with them and, and just uh, what we've heard ourselves that, that within this, there was a subtext of using episiotomy more liberally uh, whenever the woman was looked like that, she was going to tear then the midwives were, were encouraged to consider um, cutting an episiotomy. And certainly, you know, as I mentioned in a number of the studies we've seen, uh, that introduction of the bundle has increased rates of, of episiotomy. Why do you think, Nigel, that they think episiotomy is better than a woman tearing? Because, you know, in this instance, they don't know if that woman's going to tear, but you're guaranteed when you've got an episiotomy that you've got to cut there. Like there's, you know... It, like, where is the logic? Because I often say to women, like, there's no guarantee you're going to tear, but if you accept that episiotomy, you guarantee you've yeah. got that trauma. Yeah, I think there are two different cases here. I mean, one of them's in, as you say, in a, you know, an otherwise normal spontaneous vaginal birth. There is, you know, up until the introduction of the bundles, we, we had moved away from, from cutting episiotomies routinely and pretty well the only reason we would would do one that if the baby was in trouble, you know, if the heart rate was down and not recovering, uh, and we clearly need to expedite that birth. Uh, and you know, interestingly, the um, you think about sort of the the anatomy that the the tears go through. The episiotomy goes through exactly the same same layers of, of skin and perineum and, and muscle. Um, and there are certainly probable benefits to to having a tear over an episiotomy. Uh, generally, they're considered to be to be less painful, and they also heal a little bit better than uh, than episiotomies. And there is again some evidence for this. I was looking at um, at some studies that have looked actually looked at have, uh, they've cut episiotomies on cadavers. It sounds a bit dramatic, but but they've been looking at the actual structures that are involved. Um, and there's certainly a lot more nerve and and muscle damage involved in cutting an episiotomy compared to uh, a tear that invariably occurs down the midline or down the centre because of the direction and the angle that it goes off. And what's happened with the bundle was that they changed the, the minimum angle for an episiotomy from around about sort of 30 to 45 degrees up to 60 degrees, the idea being that that would, would prevent the episiotomies from extending themselves into third-degree tears, into severe perineal injury and involving the anal sphincter, which did actually happen. Uh, and was a known risk factor. If you cut an episiotomy, then that itself became a risk factor for a severe perineal injury. Uh, so the, the idea was that they would, if we increase the angle, cutting off at 60 degrees, which is really quite wide, it's almost sort of now cutting into the buttocks as opposed to the, to the just the, the, the perineal area. Um, where, that, where did that, um, because this is, I guess, some of my issue that, uh, where did the 60 degrees come from or is this just consensus or the usual like I just pulled it out of my ass and decided that, <laughs> you know, like going <laughs> to put it in this bundle? It's probably a, a bit of both. I think, I think it came out of someone's opinion that, okay, well, the wider we cut it, the less likely it is to extend. Um, there hasn't been an enormous amount of, of, of research on this. So there's not, nobody's sort of done a, a good RCT to see whether um, – this actually works in terms of of 
reducing third and fourths. The other thing is that they haven't actually done any research into the to the medium and long term outcomes either. So, you know, there may be some some indication that okay, we're probably getting fewer episiotomies extended into third and fourth degree tears because we're cutting at a wider angle. Whether it actually produces overall third and fourth degree tears is still a bit contentious. But it's the the ongoing harm and ongoing problems. We know that there's an increased um, incidence of urinary incontinence and sexual dysfunction from women who've had episiotomies. And this appears to increase with in rate with the angle at which the, um, uh, the episiotomy is cut. But you know, nobody's gone back out there and, and had a look at these women who've had these 60-degree angle episiotomies and done any research in terms of what are the, the ongoing issues uh, resulting from that, that wider angle of episiotomy. I mean, anecdotally from women, they're not happy um, because at the time they thought it was needed, but then afterwards, and I guess they probably have a look at the bundle and go, what the hell? Um, but, but anecdotally from women, I'm hearing that, uh, yeah, like sexual dysfunction is a, is a huge issue, the pain. Um, mm. and, and sometimes it, it is just painful just to sit. And this isn't just like a six-week. This is 12 months later as well. So it would be great if there was some, you know, high-quality research around these long-term uh, issues because these things are often implemented and there is no, I, I guess, strategy for how do we properly evaluate this outside of the data that the hospital's getting us, you know, like giving us, that, that women, which should be the centre of care, are often the afterthought or, or the long-term impacts of implementing such, um, like a bundle that's having such a huge impact on women and it's so prolific, like it's so widespread now that it's not just in those main hospitals that first um, signed up to it. <clears throat> Yes, and you're quite right. That that is kind of the problem, you know. We we we've, and you know, maternity care is notorious for this sort of thing, as in other areas of medicine. But but in in maternity care, we kind of made this, a, you know, almost a, a refined art in introducing um, procedures or changing procedures without actually giving a, a great deal of thought to what are really are going to be the, the ongoing sequelae and ramifications of what we're actually doing. Now, I think we got up to number four. What was the fifth part of the bundle? So we've got the compress, the um, – what else was it? The- uh, so episiotomy was number three. Yeah. So four and five were all about um, the PR examination afterwards. Oh, yeah. Uh, How could I forget that? So yes, can we explain what um, PR is? Um, you know, is, is there any evidence behind it? And, you know, what could the alternative be? I mean, I just tell women, say no, but it, it's all well and good when there's a power imbalance and, you know, various other things just to tell women to say yeah. no, it just doesn't happen like that. No, it doesn't. And there is, you know, I, again, as you mentioned, there's quite a you know, the big kind of power imbalance around consent for this is, is one of the big problems. But a PR, which stands for per rectum, which is basically a... Uh, a rectal examination after birth, which we would we used to do quite routinely after um after before and after suturing to to see if there was any any damage to the anal sphincter because there is you can't always see it, um, but you can sometimes feel it there if you're a reasonably experienced practitioner, uh, and then you can if the perineum is torn then you can actually repair the the anal sphincter and uh, hopefully sort of reduce the, the chances of, of having things like faecal incontinence and uh, and that sort of thing afterwards. So, but what the, the 
the difference that came along with the perineal bundle was instead of applying this to women who just had a, a perineal injury, they applied it to all women. Um, because there had been a little bit of research and, and very, very, very small numbers of women who, who had injuries to the anal, might have had injuries to the anal sphincter that weren't, the, but still had intact perineums, but they were very, very small numbers. Um, but now they're applying the, the, the PR exam to women with intact perineums. Uh, which is the contentious part because generally we consider if the if the, the, the perineum is intact, then the likelihood of having a, a sphincter injury is is really, really small. Yeah, and, and I guess my issue comes back to the consent because the the informed consent part is often missing. It's kind of, oh, I'll just do this. You know, it doesn't yeah. consider women's previous trauma and we know, you know, whether it's birth trauma or other like sexual trauma – that I just, you know, it's really poor form. But, um, again, the way it's been rolled out and implemented routinely, um, and a lot of women, particularly, uh, you know, vulnerable women and those who are uneducated, they actually don't know that this is not part of birth. Like they just think that all this stuff that's done to them is just routine. And, and a lot of women will say to me, I didn't even know I could say no. Yeah, and I think, you know, that's that's you know, we have a broader debate about consent, but I think we certainly need to be, you know, supporting women and, and telling them that it's perfectly okay to say no, that, you know, the consent is, is in, in, you know, in means that they can actually decline um, this sort of care if they don't want it. And I think there are two issues with, with the, the bundle. And it's in terms of the PR exam, it's interesting that, you know, I was looking at the, the, um, the information that the brochure that they they send out to women, there is no mention of the PR exam on their their information for women. Not one. It's just just not there. Um, Can you also explain and, how how the bundle, like as in, we're all just included unless you opt out. So if you're not even told about it or or don't know the comparison is that none of this happens, that. It, like we all just get herded into it, and it would take it would be a very small number of, of usually quite well educated or, or resourced and very health literate consumers that would know that they could actually get mm. out of this. Yes, and that you're quite right. That it, the, the problem, one of the, the other problem is that, that this has been presented to the midwives and other practitioners as as an opt out scenario. So it, the, the default is it happens to every woman every time, um, unless the woman actually bites up and says, no, actually, I don't want that. Uh, and it also relies upon all of these sorts of things being discussed, you know, prior to the woman actually going into labour. Labour is a terrible time to try and sort of get consent from people because it's, you know, there's, there's pain and there's analgesia and it's going, sometimes goes fairly quickly. Uh, so it's it's not the ideal time to be trying introducing concepts or ideas and trying to get them to to think about them and discussing alternatives. Yeah. Uh, and also from a know, physiological this, perspective, like like that logical part of our brain is not really it's not there for birth. Like it's just you know I mean that's no. not not that's not to mean that consent um, shouldn't be obtained at all. But um, those kind of lengthy discussions and you know a woman trying to weigh up the pros and cons. Um, it's a lot harder if she doesn't have that any education on it beforehand. Can you tell me, because I actually haven't looked into this, were these um, information brochures, were they ever um, converted or translated into other languages as well for our more vulnerable groups or, you know, were there more infographics for consumers with low health literacy? 
I'm not sure what they did in terms of the only ones I could find uh, on the WHO website were in English. Um, and I think they were probably, because they sent these out to their um, to their, their member hospitals as well. And I think the idea was that their, the member hospitals would then be responsible for translating into uh, various languages and including in their, uh, their antenatal packages. And that's really an issue as well because, you know, that sometimes they'll, they'll print up these brochures and they'll put them into internet, these big antenatal packs full of a whole lot of other information that they send out to women when they book into hospital. And we know, you know, that women generally do not read these. They, they put them aside and they've got better things to do. Um, and there is a whole suite of information that goes out. Uh, and that generally these sorts of information brochures are pretty ineffective unless you actually sit down with a woman um, and make a specific time and, and, and take time to go through and, and, and talk about each one uh, and then actually record there and then whether she feels that she wants to consent to this sort of thing or not. Yeah, yep, I agree. Um, and I know we earlier just compared the data between 2017 and 2019, so the um, Mothers and the National Mothers and Babies Report, and it has shown that episiotomy rate, at least for first-time mothers, has increased. Mm. Why do you think this is so? Like, why do you think it, this has happened? Well, I think there are two reasons. I think within the bundle, they met, basically mandated the use of episiotomies for women who had uh, an instrumental birth, a faucet's birth or a, a vacuum birth for their first birth. Um, so they, they were supposed to have an episiotomy. So I think that's probably had an impact as well. But I also think going back to the – they also mandated the, the hands-on approach. Um, and, you know, the research that we published a few years ago, again, looking at those 27,000 births, what we saw was that midwives who used the hands-on approach were about two and a half times more likely to cut an episiotomy than those that used the hands-poised approach. Um, but there was no difference in third and fourth degree tears between those groups. They just, women who had their hands on, just came out with more perineal injuries because they got more episiotomies. Yeah. Um, is there anything mm. else that you'd like to share from your research? So, um, correct me if I'm wrong, you interviewed midwives. Now, has your research on consumers um, and their interviews been finalised or is there anything that you can share like uh, trends in some of the answers that you're coming across? <laughs> yes, we have completed our, our interviews with um, with women who, who had the bundle. Uh, but unfortunately, we're still in the data analysis part of that. So it wouldn't be fair to start sort of talking about possible outcomes because we're still still going through that. But, you know, we, we did interview uh, the midwives and we published that. And they, the data that we, we got out of that, that there were real issues in terms of the information that were provided to women and how this impacted upon the way that midwives went about getting consent uh, and the pressure that they f they felt they were under to uh, to get women to to consent to the bundle because that was the default position. So essentially, um, you know, the, the their hospitals are saying, well, you know, we, we'd like women to do this, and it's it wouldn't say it explicitly, but certainly the the implication was there that that you know it was default unless women actually said no, um, and plus the midwives were being surveilled, so they were being you know that little tick sheet whether they applied the various parts of the bundle, and if they didn't, uh, they had to provide an explanation why. Uh, 
So, yeah, if, you know, so, so a, it's almost a, like enforced by the culture, which mm. is often what happens is the midwives become the foot, foot soldiers for this like institutionalised abuse that keeps going in various forms. Yes, and it places a number of midwives uh, in, in a quite a difficult position because, you know, they, they're there to provide that woman-centred care and that's a philosophy that's very, very strong amongst midwives. But also, as you say, they work for an organisation, for a hospital institution who has this policy. So, you know, providing woman-centred care sometimes meant that they were not going to be following the hospital policy um, or they felt you know, under a certain amount of pressure to to direct the conversation around consent to make sure that women complied so they could then follow the policy and not get into trouble. Yeah, which is, like I said, it seems um, like it, this bundle just seems it goes hand in hand with all the other, you know, procedures and, and things that end up happening to women um, that then the midwives are between the almost like the rock and the hard place. And I know consumers will be like, but, you know, at the end of the day they should always represent consumers and, or, you know, like deliver care to women in that woman-centred way. And I, whilst I agree with that, when you've got – it's almost like that bullying culture and, you know, that moulds midwives to comply with the system and then, unfortunately, you know, then they're making women comply and being quite – I mean, I don't think overtly complicit, but it does come, you know, down to keeping my job so I have to be complicit in, you know, another lot of abuse for women. Oh yes, it is, and you know, if, if and, and the level of surveillance that that went with the introduction of the bundle was had had not been done before. You know, we had they had people coming into the birth rooms to, to observe the birth to make sure the the uh, the bundle was being applied correctly, and they were being questioned if they were if it wasn't. Um, and this came through in our research uh, with the midwives that you know they really did feel a, a bit under the thumb. Um, in doing this, and I think you know, quite it, it's it, it it always just astounds me that we, we you know over the years that we, we've been trying to sort of promote normal birth and physiological birth, but the figures just keep going backwards. The numbers, the rates for a normal vaginal birth keep declining. Uh, the rates of induction, rates of intervention just keep increasing. Whatever we've been doing to date it just isn't working. So it's you know I think it's time that we did have a really good sort of you know, root and branch look at, at what we were doing. And I think, you know, taking birth out of these these hospital environments, um, um, building more birth centres, supporting publicly funded home birth, uh, these are really probably going to be the ways to to impact upon the, the current trends that we're seeing because the, uh, the hospitals themselves are just becoming completely risk averse so we're inducing women for more and more reasons. Um, uh, our tolerance for, for duration of labour is getting less. Uh, we're introducing more interventions. And again, to, re, to, you know, to try and eliminate risk as opposed to manage it. Yeah, and I think because the risk of causing trauma is not really acknowledged from a psychological point of view, um, when, you know, like when we talk about eliminating risk, because women will go, oh, my God, but, you know, like I ended up with birth trauma and PTSD, uh, this risk is more like a physical risk and, you know, we could also argue that there's no guarantees that that induction was going to save my baby and we know that's not the case. But when you're talking about the way the system works, there's that definite culture that values the over-application um, as the saviour 
rather than um, the woman's experience or even valuing it on par. Well, that's right. And, the, the you know, the downside of trying to sort of manage all this is, as you say, they're, they're you know, bundling all women together and we're really – it makes that that individualised care very very difficult when you've got these these overarching uh, bundles, you know, like the the perineal bundle and the safer baby bundle, and you know they're all going for you know very laudable objectives, but sometimes it's just really not the way to apply them to everyone as they come in, because uh, it really just increases the institutionalisation of 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 birth uh, and takes it away from from that very, you know, sort of individualised experience, which we really should be supporting. Yeah. Um, the other thing that came to mind is I think the language we use, like episiotomy really, like a lot of women don't even know what episiotomy is. Um, mm. And I've started actually calling it like sanctioned female genital mutilation. And then they start to think, oh, so someone's cutting me because even for women, you could imagine that time of consent, I'm just going to cut an episiotomy. And she's like, yeah, 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 you know, you must need to do it but having no idea even what an episiotomy is. Um, how do you think that the bundle could have been done better or what should we be doing, um, perhaps within a clinical setting? So we know, yes, we need to get more women out in the community, more birth centres, um, you know, more home births. What else could we be doing to reduce, you know, I guess the intention of the bundle was to reduce certain fourth degree tears. It's arguable whether it's done that, it's certainly traumatised more women and we have seen a huge increase in episiotomy rates. So I don't know. I mean, I, as a consumer, I don't think that's a great measure of success at all. I actually think it, I would say it's a failure because we've replaced one trauma with another and we've also further normalised interventions with episiotomy. How do you think that we could have solved or at least improved the third and fourth degree tear rate in this country? Uh, well, I think the first thing would be to to choose a different bundle. <laughs> actually, actually, you know, look at look at the evidence. Look at what's working. Don't just go with something because it's traditional and everyone thinks it's a good idea. Um, but you know, there are examples of other bundles. There's the Stomp Project in the UK, and they put together a you know a bundle looking at reducing third and fourth degree tears. But they specifically wanted to move away from the very prescriptive issues. You know, they looked at the impact upon upon episiotomy rates. They looked at the impact upon women's birth positions. Um, so they came up with a bundle that that did away with with increased episiotomies and hands-on. Uh, uh, they focused more on on the communication between the, the midwife and the woman, uh, particularly leading up to the birth, uh, using changing women's positions, so in, encouraging women to give birth in, in upright positions. Uh, and really just using t- tactics that would, would just slow the birth of the head down uh, right at that point. And their outcomes are exactly the same, or if not a bit better than the, you know, the WHA bundle. And, and I would say uh, if we actually ask women of their experience, which, again, I mentioned this earlier, like women's experience, um, and, and I'm sure WHA mentioned the other day when we were on the panel together that they had surveyed women but I, I would like like a consumer developed survey because mm. that actually really breaks down consent uh, because what I hear from women is, is, A, they don't understand consent. They don't know that they can say no, but also at various points 
there needs to be consent, not just for this whole bundle, but the various aspects, including like the hands-on, like who's actually saying to this woman, here's the benefits, here's the risks, what do you want me to do? And I don't think too many women would go, yeah, please pinch my perineum, I really want that. Well, that's right. Or, you know, just admitting to the fact that if, if you want me to apply this properly, well, I can't do it while you're standing or squatting or giving birth on the floor. You have to be reclining on the bed. So you know, immediately that's going to, it's going to, going to limit um, the choices that you have in the way you give birth. Do you so have think, any you know, ideas? Um, because once things are in, it's hard to get them back out. Um, do you have any idea how this could be fixed now that we've seen it like bleed into so many other hospitals and it has become like this sanctioned female genital mutilation where it is very routine now? Uh, I think, you know, I, and we look at sort of the the impact that uh, the consumers had on models of care over, over the, you know, since over the last sort of 20 years. I think compute, consumer pushback is the one way that hospitals will actually listen to. Um, it's difficult for clinicians because we've been having, as I said, we've been having these arguments for 150 years and we really haven't got much further than we have today. Uh, it just cycles between one, one approach and the other. But it really comes down to women, I think, and, and they are at the centre of this. Um, and it's making women aware of, of what the parts of the bundle, but not just the bundle, but other parts of maternity care as well, um, making them more aware of what's going on and and just facilitating that conversation and the ability to actually say no. Um, yeah. Um, oh, when I founded this podcast, um, there was a reason behind it because I had noticed in all the feminist waves that birth was a forgotten feminist issue do you have any views, Nigel, on why birth was forgotten and why it's become and still ongoing if we look at this? Like how do we not have outrage that one in four first-time mothers are being cut and having long-term issues? Why do you think that birth is a forgotten feminist issue? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, and I think it's it's one of these things that that's, that's – that, that, that because it takes place in hospitals, I think, and that they're institutions where women go to, to feel safe. Um, and there's there is always this kind of relationship between women and, and healthcare professionals that they are very, very trusting. So, uh, which is also one reason why it's very easy to convince women to to do these sorts of things because they there is that power imbalance within the hospital itself. And I think that works against the. Uh, birth being seen as a kind of feminist issue and so I think it, it, we, you know again taking where we've seen birth become a more of a feminist issue is in those areas where birth has been removed from the hospital and out into home birth and and it's that the, that greater um, like right to choice expression of choice mm. yes yeah, yeah awesome. but we still have that very kind of trusting relationship within um, within the hospital and the sort of health institutions that kind of that needs to be questioned as, as a sort of a, a, a feminist issue, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for joining me today. Um, in the show notes, I'll pop your research because I'm sure there'll be midwives and women who, um, and I'll update it when you the consumer research comes out, but I'm sure there's consumers and midwives mm-hmm. who would be keen to read 
the research that you've found from the perennial tear bundle and what midwives were saying and, um, you know, the surveillance <laughs> going on and, and things like that. Um, like I know as a consumer, I didn't realise how, I guess, heavy-handed this um, bundle had been applied. But I really appreciate your time and insight because we've not had, I don't think, this depth of discussion um, anywhere in this space. Um, you know, there's been things written, but I think to actually – really go deep into the research and the elements of the bundle and, and, you know, why it's become so prolific and I guess how how we can undo it or, or what, what a decent alternative would be has been really great today. So thanks so much for coming on. Oh, that's right. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to work with me and some of my amazing short courses – I've got pre- and postnatal yoga online. I've also got hypnobirthing classes for those in rural and remote locations. You can join via Zoom. And I've also got a new course called Mastering People-Pleasing to Have an Amazing Birth. It's great for those who are perfectionist or reform perfectionist, that type A personality, and those who have been indoctrinated um, into that people-pleasing model. You can head to www.aliciastains.com.au for more info.